Nós vivemos numa sociedade democrática. Ainda por cima, na sociedade em que vivemos. Mas uma sociedade desigual é uma sociedade onde somos todos mais infelizes. I don't want to live in a society. Vivemos numa sociedade. Nós vivemos numa sociedade. Vivemos numa cidade, numa cidade que vale a pena. Olá, bem-vindos ao Vivemos numa Sociedade. Este episódio vai ser em inglês porque temos um convidado muito especial, o Chris Wade. Ele é o produtor do podcast Chapo Trap House e está a fazer uma série muito interessante sobre a guerra dos 30 anos chamada Hell on Earth, que podem ouvir no Patreon de Chapo Trap House. A entrevista vai ser em inglês, como eu disse, estamos cá todos, eu, Guilherme, a Catarina, a Rita, o João um, uh, e pronto, espero que aturem o facto de não haver legendas num podcast uh, espero que seja tão interessante para vocês como está a ser para nós uh, So, hi Chris Hello, I'm happy to be here, thanks for having me um, we, I just did the intro in Portuguese I hope, uh, I'm always curious how, how Portuguese sounds to, to foreign years Well, uh, like most Americans, if I have any exposure Like most Americans, uh, I do not know any foreign languages because uh, it's not necessary <laughs> because ours is the real language of the world. Uh, so thanks true. Thanks to our uh, you know, uh, <laughs> continued global dominance. Uh, I tried to learn a little Spanish in high school. Uh, that's not true. I took Spanish for eight years in high school and then tested into Spanish one in college, so I didn't retain any of it. Uh, and so to me, Portuguese sounds like silly Spanish. <laughs> that, is, um, that, that sounds about right. Um, I had a friend of mine told me it sounds like like a weird Russian because we kind of eat our words um, a well, bit. Well, yes, I appreciate you guys doing this in English because, uh, yeah, as I just said, my Portuguese is not so good. Uh, yeah, we were just about to test Yet. it. Yet. Because <laughs> you may become a digital nomad soon. Yes, yes, we yes, yes. Um, yeah. Well, I was able to grasp the meaning of the name of your podcast when you sent it to me. So I, I can at least infer that much from my, my language studies. Yeah, that can be our first question. Do, do, do you think we live in a society? I think it's... Yes, as I was saying, as we were setting up more and more every day, we, we seem to be living in a society. Unfortunately. Yes. <laughs> uh, not much of a choice, um, which kind of segues onto the reason why you're here. Um, you are doing a... A uh, very interesting um, podcast uh, within a podcast, uh, yes. Hell on Earth, uh, which is part of um, uh, um, you know Chapo Trap House, well-known uh, podcast. Uh, uh, people can listen to it. Like the first episode's free, uh, right? First episode is free, and then the remaining episodes are on our Patreon, patreoncom House. They will be coming out weekly on Wednesdays uh, going forward for the next. I think 12 weeks, I think basically until uh, mid-March. Um, yeah, and you can subscribe to listen there. Uh, all of our content, including the main feed Patreon episodes and all of this uh, history miniseries are there for just $5 a month. Yeah, I don't think you necessarily need our advertisement, but we'll just link in case people are interested. Um, to, Always trying to, to break to into tier. foreign markets. You know, we never know. You might uh, you might get a huge audience here, and then you guys can come over and do a I show. I would love to. Yeah, that'd probably that would be amazing. So um, the, the the this podcast is is not your first historical foray. 
Um, you have done previously one called Hell of Presidents, mm -hmm. which I thought was very interesting uh, about the uh, like a, a full account of all the the presidents of the United States. But this one is is um, a European subject, so it's a, yes. it's about the Thirty Years' War, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. So in twenty twenty two, I guess we did the the Presidents podcast, and that was me and Matt's my co-hosts first foray, foray into historical podcasting and as you said we we started out thinking that we were just going to kind of do goofy funny biographies of the presidents and then that project kind of grew into realizing that we were telling the entire history of America through the office of the presidency and kind of while we were doing that you know my producer brain was already searching for sequel series and I you know just out of boredom one day was found myself reading up on the 30 years war uh in the 17th century in germany and all of these connections started getting made about all these relevancies to our our current historical moment and all of these important factors in the development of the modern state and the development of our capitalist mode the end of feudalism and Matt and I started talking about it, and we kind of realized that we could do this project as kind of, you know, if, if the story of America is the story of, you know, a colonial backwater ascending to become the power on top of the world right now, this is kind of modernity origins. Uh, plus, it has a cool, gnarly war at the center of it, and, <laughs> uh, you know, a lot of interesting characters and cool battles to get into. Uh, so, yeah, that's how we started looking into it and immediately started teasing out all these um, them thematic uh, resonances uh, that we've been trying to underline with this project. So as we record this, there are three episodes out. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, the first one's more about Martin Luther, uh, and, you know, and all the whole Protestant um, revolution, let's call it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I, I find it's, you know, interesting from our perspective because um portugal is very much a, a periphery at mm -hmm. this point uh, we were subject to spain there's a complicated history it's it, the the colonial decline of portugal can be traced to this period as well you guys um, get a few mentions yeah. in the series you, we do we do it's 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 uh it's you know we always do the you know the dicaprio meme where we're pointing at the screen yeah. and goes, oh, it's portugal yeah we, <laughs> we do that um <laughs> get a little shout out um but you know i i think what i thought was interesting and you you already touched upon that was um that there are some like parallels between the current time and you know this this um uh this particular period like in in the first episode you make an, allu an allusion to how uh, the printing press kind of changed people's brains. And obviously, you know, you're, you're also kind of talking about the Internet, right? Yes. Yeah. So you, could you talk about a little bit about the, these parallels that you were finding yes. out as you were recording and researching? Yeah. So we'll, I'll start with that one because, um, you know, that when we started digging in. So we, when we thought about, OK, how are we going to approach the 30 years war? You know, we thought about the context that we need to offer and, you know, the whole series kind of starts very broad and then focuses in on just these the 30 years of actual combat and then broads out, broadens out again. But we thought to bring what we're trying to describe to lay audiences, we had to start with the Protestant Reformation. And we were looking into that, you know, you kind of hear 
the first time you're going through history class. So, oh, yeah, Gutenberg invented the printing press, and then suddenly there were books, and that, that was the thing. But one of the things that really stuck out as very interesting was how interrelated the rise of printing as an industry was to the Protestant Reformation. And it really, like, books were basically a, a luxury item before this, and it was really the demand for Luther's work the popular demand for Luther's work that spurred a viable printing industry. And suddenly people could read things in their own language that encouraged a different form of thinking. This, this explosion in both literacy and publication that accompanied this whole moment that really changed the way subjects related to their sovereigns, to the church. And that felt very, you know, especially for the kind of things that we cover, you know, our, our show, Chapo Trap House, is, is, has been, you know, very interested in discussing phenomenons like QAnon uh, here in the States, which seems very, very intimately related to suddenly a um, wide population having access to all this uh, information and uh, ability to communicate uh, and organize uh, with each other in brand new ways that kind of has this familiar feeling of the same people who were perhaps reading the Bible in a vernacular language for the first time of being like, oh, suddenly I can read everything and now I am the smartest person the world has ever seen. Uh, <laughs> and I, I know the truth. And, you know, I'm not directly one-to-one -one comparing, you know, being able to read the Bible for the first time to coming up with QAnon-style con conspiracies, but you will be surprised how many... Uh, QAnon-style conspiracies pop up in this story. Um, I mean, like, how many do-your-own-research uh, yes, exactly. like, you know, type guys are were there, right? I mean, Martin Luther is eff effectively a do-your-own-research type guy. I mean, that's <laughs> what he is telling the uh, the people of Germany of, like, hey, if you actually re if you actually read this thing, nothing that the Catholic <laughs> Church is saying is in it. You have to you, do your own, like, read yourself, form yeah. your own relationship. Uh and then from there, you know, going on into the 17th century, there is this general crisis that wraps up financial collapse spurred by, you know, massive inflation from the Spanish pulling mountains of silver out of the New World and into um, the continent. There is climate change. During the 17th century, all of Europe goes through a little ice age that has numerous um, causes, some natural, like there is a recorded decline in sunspots at that time like the sun literally grew dimmer uh which contributes to an overall feeling of ap apocalyptic thinking at the time but there's also potentially uh anthropogenic causes of the climate change at this moment you know it is theorized that european contact with the new world and the subsequent rapid drastic depopulation through disease put a bunch of settled land and urbanized areas in the new world back into uh wild forestation which caused a massive carbon sink which had the opposite effect of what we're going through with global warming so there's this climate change element that drastically affected the productive capacity of the the european continent at this time uh there's the as i mentioned the information re revolution there is also just the, this general um calcification of uh, the political class, uh, a kind of organizational maximum of feudalism that led to this ruling class that found itself unable to respond to any of these crises in any effective way with the t dynastic tools that they had on hand. Um, 
and just a general feeling of apocalyptic thinking around the time that I think uh, is more and more familiar to people of this day. And, and that's kind of one of the reasons, you know, the, the emotional core of what we're trying to get at is, is that these people's apocalypse is similar to what we are feeling is our apocalypse. I mean, yeah, definitely there are some parallels between, you know, us having like constant news of this uh, climate crisis and what people must have felt at the time, right? Where, you know, you have like crop failures, you Mm -hmm. have uh, some freak weather, you have, you know... Suddenly it's snowing in August in Germany, you know, stuff like that. (laughs) Right, exactly. So that's that's also very interesting. I I had a sort of like a parallel question because I was wondering if you guys had any... um, like references of like historical podcasts that you like. Oh, yes. I mean, Matt and I both at this point listen almost exclusively to historical podcasts. The chief of which is the j- just wrapped uh, Revolutions podcast by right. Mike Duncan. Uh, he it's so he, good. He is. <laughs> I'm the yeah. yeah. He is incredible. Um, and that's like the the chief one. If you like, if you want just hours and days of really stellar really direct informative narrative podcasting um he he's the man um and then also dan carlin's hardcore history just in terms of dramatic storytelling is one of the best his episode on the munster rebellion was a big uh influence on this show or or inspiration for this show that episode is called prophets of doom under hardcore history his older episodes are a little harder to find because i think he keeps them archived but it's it's well worth uh, searching out if you're into this history, uh, Dan Carlin's hardcore history, Prophets of Doom, and then also uh, I would say uh, Dave Anthony's The Dollop, uh, if anybody's mm. ever heard of that, which is a podcast by a comedian friend of ours named Dave Anthony, who's been a stand-up for a long time. That basically each episode is him telling a weird, bizarre dramatic story of american history to his friend who is another stand-up comedian and the friend just doesn't know it and jokes about it and in terms of like tone and taking kind of a uh, humorous and sarcastic a little bit of a humorous and sarcastic look the dollop uh by dave anthony is a big influence of mine and that also has like a billion episodes and they're all really funny (laughs) right yeah i can definitely uh hear that chris um hi hi let's let's go back to the the parallels you were talking about um you probably know that in 1640 uh portugal broke away from from spain yes we discussed and that the printing press the eventually yeah and the printing press was, was very 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 important to to uh for war propaganda mm-hmm. um and especially fake news because yeah. portugal was was um fighting that war for 26 years mm-hmm. we actually celebrate the year, the, the, the day, the first day, the day of the supposed revolution, which then the war took another 28 years to, to finish. Now, now remind me, is um, that the, the day that the, um, that, uh, Braganza and the, the conspirators, uh, assassinate, it was the conspirators, yeah, yeah, assassinate the, um, the, the, whatever you call it, the, 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 the governor of, uh, Viceroy, 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 yes. Yeah. The Braganza was in, was far away from Lisbon. He was took and took by surprise. By surprise. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so what I was th- wanting to ask is that did you find in your research war propaganda and or fake news? Because you get a lot of that uh, during the Portuguese Spanish War, 
and written in various languages, in Latin, in um, Catalan, in French. So Portugal was exporting basically war propaganda and mm -hmm. fake news to try and justify uh, its independence. Yes. Um, I mean, we, one of the most fascinating thing, uh, things that I saw about this is the idea that even within the first generation of these religious wars, uh, you know, back in the 1530s, there was mobile printing presses that the uh, various generals and dukes and leaders would take on campaign with them so that at the moment of victory, they could be starting to churn out broadsheets and pamphlets uh, describing their, their smashing victories to everyone else uh, around them. And yeah, th throughout all of this, the printing press is both a tool of genuine information spread, but also, you know, from the beginning, a, a tool of orienting people around ideological camps. And largely at first, these start with confessional camps and the Protestant-Catholic divide. But as this goes on, the ideological uh, orientations of Protestant and Catholic end up being subsumed through the course of this war into more political projects. And um, I'm trying to find right now, because in one of the last episodes, uh, Matt literally refers to something that's coming out as a, a early example of classic fake news media. Uh, but I, I don't have it off the top of my head. But but certainly, you know, at, at every moment throughout these this uh, story, you should be imagining a low-key press war uh, happening underneath um, all the events going on. Oh, um... There's yeah. like the herrings and the battle in the sky. I mean, that's like religious. So yeah, that's yeah. controversial well, if, if it's There's a, a small industry of, of prophetic writing going on where everybody is attempting to uh, interpret signs from above. Uh, when we get to England, which is where the series ends up, because after the we conclude the Peace of Westphalia, we hop over to England and talk about the English Civil War uh, up to the Glorious Revolution. Um, and there... One of the key factors going on throughout the, you know, this conflict that is the largely um, Puritan, uh, Calvinist uh, merchant class against the uh, the more Anglican or even crypto-Catholic king is this fear, this almost Red Scare-like panic of crypto-Catholicism within England. Uh, and certainly by the 1640s, uh, recusant um, Catholics are a small minority of the... English population, and yet there's this massive paranoid printing uh, industry that is at all times churning out these tracks about how there are these cells of crypto-Catholics who at any moment are ready to activate and surround London and take it and burn the, uh, you know, the godly Puritans. And I, I remember the one thing Matt was referencing is tracks uh, defaming the Catholic uh, rebels in Ireland claiming that, you know, the amount of murdered uh, murdered Protestants in Ireland was hundreds of thousands of people when that was, you know, five, ten times the amount of Protestants that were even living in uh, Ireland at the time. Uh, so, yeah, that's that was the most recent example from the last episode that we recorded of, of, of a classic early example of the lie and fake news media ginning up 
uh, violent paranoia against a um, a minority group who is simultaneously opposed to be destroyed and also posed to emerge from hiding and destroy your uh, you know the, the the people in power. Right, and and there's like um, an incentive that goes with that, right? Like uh, printing this stuff just becomes this huge industry mm-hmm. at the, at the same time. So there's you know, like very quickly you go, get, you get into sensationalism and all that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I was just wondering because you, you mentioned Mike Duncan. I also listened to that one and it's interesting for me um, that you kind of see his ideological perspectives change during mm-hmm. the, the podcast, especially with Haiti. Yes. And he mentions that as well. Right. Um, but in the end, if, if you listen to that, he kind of goes through what he thinks kind of makes a, a revolution mm-hmm. and, um, you know, he talks about having a, a dissatisfied uh, slice of the elite or the, mm-hmm. the ruling class that kind of um, gins up some some uh, grievances to try and, you know, get themselves a, a share of power. Right. Yes. Um, uh, and what what I think is interesting is it's almost like this um, uh, wizard's apprentice type thing where they end up, you know, you talk about the Anabaptists at the beginning. Yes. Right. Um, so like, I, I always find that interesting because in all these societies and these revolutions, you have these proto, uh, communists, if you want to call them, you know, um, like the, the levelers and the the diggers and, you know, like you have all these, these phenomena. Um, but like, did you find a lot of these, of these cases? Well, there's certainly throughout, uh, all this time, a more radical edge of the reformation that is constantly being dealt with, you, you know. I get through right. with the Thirty Years' War. We are really looking at um, you know a, a princely revolt uh, against an imperial top uh, that's happening in Germany, um, and a lot of the action there is mostly around these uh, you know uh, lesser nobles attempting to assort assert their privileges in the face of a failing you know few essentially you know feudal overlord Uh, and that's where we talk where we talk about uh portugal in the 1640s that happens in our west that's how we start our westphalia episode with the um the the reaper's war in catalan in which you do see something interesting like this uh where there what starts as a rebellion of laborers becomes kind of a a cross-class rebellion uh, you know uniting everything from everyone from lesser nobles to um you know the, the 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 ascending bourgeois down to the workers against this imposition of you know the Habsburg center rule over Catalan uh, to extract resources, men, money, taxes to fight this ever going war in Germany that they have no part of. Um, and then also at the same time that is when the the, the uh, nobles of Portugal, also try to assert uh, and eventually successfully assert their independence from Spain uh, along the same grounds as the German princes are trying to assert their independence from the Austrian Habsburgs. So, you know, it, it, the, the real push and pull of this era um, in the main story is really between these, these centralizing dynasties attempting to assert what is going to eventually become what we can really uh, imagine as a state in the modern sense uh, against the centrifugal pool of these you know uh, uh, nobles uh, in yeah. the in the more feudal sense 
that creates this this conflict. Um, real on, I was just talking about this on the last show that I was on. Real on the ground, like levelers and digger, diggers stuff. Real uh, peasant revolts uh, around this time, of which there are many throughout this entire story from the beginning of the um, the Reformation up through you know there's there's a revolt in Sweden in the 1650s and you know the the glorious revolution which we end at isn't well that isn't really a peasant revolt but all through this era yeah yeah, yeah um you know there are tons of these peasant revolts but they tend to be uh small and um or, or unable to cohere into something larger partially because there isn't a really ideological framework to build something out of other than general dissatisfaction and then i would also argue that it really is uh you know access to the information technology like the reformation and then eventually the ideological framework for the 30 years war revolt of the princes is really spread through these uh print these printed materials which are largely uh urban based and spread between an increasingly democratized but still you know at least somewhat higher class elite. And, you know, there's just no way to coordinate in uh, a large scale peasant revolt when, you know, the fastest that you can travel information is like one guy on a horse or like perhaps a particularly radical itinerant preacher or something like that. Right. Um, Yeah. It's, it's kind of hard to do these, you know, mass revolutions when you're atomized and and that feudal sense. Right. But this just made me think, made me think that, for instance, Matt has, you know, read and talked about Dawn of Everything, and there's like this strain of, I, I'd call it like leftist, uh, hist- like reappraisals of history, mm-hmm. right? You, and I think it's kind of tempting for leftists because we're now at a, at a point like after the fall of the Soviet Union and everything else, we're kind of at a point where we're kind of looking back and trying to figure out, you know, maybe where did it all go wrong or something. Um, and like we have this like you know neoliberal hegemony or something. Do you think like there's an aspect of that when you're doing this, where you're looking at the origins of capitalism, trying to figure out like what are the hinge points? I mean, we literally, you know, Chapo literally has a series called Hinge Points, where we try exactly. to look at the important moments and see dis- discuss from a historical perspective things could go a different way. I I think with this series, at least from my end, I. Uh, my really what I'm trying to do is just describe an interesting time period in history and try to do the best that we can making sense of it uh, through our particular material uh, lens. And I, one of the things that is both difficult as a storyteller, but also, you know, I hoping that we do a good job with is that there with the 30 years war, there's, there's not really good guys or bad guys in a historical sense, you know, typically, you know, when you're trying to do pop left history, you want to find your revolutionaries and your uh, broad uh, groups of, of, you know, workers or laborers or, or the oppressed and, and identify and root for them. But this really is like a group of lesser princes against greater princes. And I think that the thing that we're trying to get at is that the backdrop for why this happens and how this happens and the process that these are going to is very much inflected by not just guys doing stuff, but a a material reason that things are happening. These economic conditions that they find themselves in, the declining mode of production that they are sitting on top of that they don't even know 
is declining. They can't know because they're living inside of it, coupled with these things that are interpreted at the time as largely signs and wonders, things like suddenly it's colder and suddenly your crops are failing and suddenly you can't plant as high an altitude as you can anymore because the sun's getting dimmer. Yeah, you know, the vibe's off. The right? vibe is off, and they don't yeah. really know how, and yet they must continue moving through their moment in history. And so, you know, we, w- we just want to go about this story by, like, saying what happened, but then also trying to, for a modern audience, put a material context around it and kind of show how history and the actions of people in it are shaped by the and, and projected forward by the material forces around them. And, and often we see throughout this the individuals who are able to triumph are the ones who are able to, for a time, flow with history rather than sit against it or try to prop up a decaying order or, or something with that. Right. And um, I, it's interesting that that is a parallel with our times, right? Like we do still have in almost every country like these national... Uh, reactionaries or mm-hmm. capital that they kind of have this uh, pseudo populist uh, thing against global capital, mm-hmm. right? So you know you ha- you still have your princes and your imperial forces. Yes. It's just a different dynamic. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, I think I'd like to talk a bit about like um, um, you know like current politics. Sure. Like I th- I think it's like interesting. Like Chapo is such a was such a is such a big phenomenon, right? Like in in the in the um, kind of starting with the Bernie campaign and, and then now we're kind of in a post like two Bernie campaigns. Like, is it like, how do you feel that, you know, the vibe has shifted, right? Like, yes. Um, you know, it, I think we are in a, a con we at, uh, uh, Chapo co are in a constant, mm-hmm. um, you know, search for for how to adapt to the vibe i mean definitely the era of the two bernie campaigns you know felt uh like there was a palpable chance for something different and you know we felt not only enthused and motivated by, by it but also that it was to be moved by the moment of history we needed to follow it and push for it as much and you know i think that we would all say that that moment has for the time past and it is a little difficult to figure out what the project should be now and i think many of our detractors uh would uh or even other of our friends uh you know on the left in the states might call say oh that there is a um a pessimism to that or a doomerism to that i personally would call it more of a wait and see mentality uh that you know especially doing these two history projects like moments of contingency can arise very quickly and things can move very fast if you are waiting for your right moment to take a shot and i know that this is all you know very vague terms but you know i'm thinking about it in the sense of the two bernie campaigns is that the, the thing about those campaigns that made it a moment of possibility here is bernie allowed a very big tent organization on the left something that was broadly agreeable to almost anyone who considers themselves a like leftist uh in america no matter what brings you there specifically and and that was the moment of opportunity there um so now we're kind of in a holding pattern of just making fun of 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 doddering old biden and and ridiculous trump and just kind of 
observing the inherent absurdity of our political situation. But, you know, I'm I'm also constantly heartened and trying to highlight on the show uh, things that I think are, you know, um, possible. Uh, the, right. the certain moment of l- increased interest in labor participation in, in the states, certainly the greatest it's ever been in my lifetime, even if it is still minuscule compared to even a generation before I was born. Um, there's an awareness of the power represented in that. Um, you know, even if it's, it's people trying to organize individual Starbucks to people being more and more aware of, you know, our train and uh, locomotive unions, even if the last thing that, you know, the last reason they were in the news was vaguely a defeat for them, that is more than I've heard about tr- locomotive unions in the States than in my lifetime. So just that general awareness is something to, to I think, orient around. I mean, to me, that that is where right. the future lies, is, is hopefully a, a newly militant labor force in America, of which I will have to say I will be mostly an observer of. I work in a m- independent media company of four people. There's not much right. I can do to participate, but I can certainly try to highlight it when it is around. So, news from Portugal. Yes. Not that you've not heard of them, because according to our mayor, Lisbon is the center of the world, so you're probably <laughs> very much aware of this. But our mayor called Carlos Moedas, or as you may call him, Charles Coins, okay. <laughs> uh, has been uh, going through a lot with the church recently. Uh, we are paying 4 million euros for a stage for the Pope. Yeah. What do you think of this? So the Pope is visiting Lisbon, and you and the... Mayor because we're the center of the yes. world, pretty much. Um, yeah, well, uh, I mean, I, see, this is where I, I would have to ask, like, how much of you know state interaction with Catholicism is still like a live issue in Portugal. Like, certainly in the states, you know, religious topics in, inflect our politics, but you know. It, it tends to be in a very craven culture war way where it, it, it's mostly just red meat for a, uh, a certain subset of our population. And there's there truly isn't that much state interaction with the church here. So I, I imagine, you know, sitting here in the 21st century, 2023, um, there, there must be a big generational divide in Portugal between people who are like, yes, it is totally appropriate for the, the state to be shilling out money for a state visit to the Pope and people who are like, do not let that guy in the country. We don't care. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, basically like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think Vatican it's not a, said that a, a big division like that. Ah, yeah, yeah. So today the Vatican said, the, like the mayor of Lisbon, um, Charles Coins. Charles Coins. He had the Vatican say that they had nothing to do with the project, which will cost more than 80 million euros. Yeah. The altar is just 4.2. Yeah. But the total is 80. And how long Charles is this Coins, visit? Is he setting up shop so here? This is it's so th- like these are days. He's going to move. Probably. Yeah, this is this is like a a yearly event about like Catholic youths mm-hmm. uh, get going to some place and and like the pope will be there. Oh, okay. So this is like, like the po- the the Catholic Olympics or something. So the, yeah, this is something like, like that. Yeah. But instead of uh, Pope on tour. sports, yeah. the, the kids, the Catholic kids, they come to smoke weed and do <laughs> sex before marriage. <laughs> like 
<laughs> yeah. Um, it's, well, in lots of uh, scout, boy, scouts. Yeah, Boy Scouts. Boy yeah. Scouts well, and Girl Scouts, yeah. I guess. Yeah, they have a very... I don't know how it is in the United States, but it's a very religious thing. Like, scouts are a very religious oh, thing. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, fascist and religious. Yes, also. Like, they, we had, like, a Hitler youth thing, and they're kind of the descendants from that. So. Yeah, we do. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Probably s- have to cut here. this part I mean, out. I remember <laughs> the, uh, you, yeah. like, honestly, we had a, a German Bund in uh, America as well. That was, like, a very much a, a thing until that, that whole business in the 40s. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I, yeah, I will say, yeah. you know, there we have a kind of parallel type thing here which is that our mayor uh eric adams here in new york city uh just put in a bid to host the dnc the democratic national convention here in new york in uh 2024 which would also be a of a huge cost to the the taxpayers that is a you know a nationwide convention of every important democratic official uh it is you know the launch point for whoever is running for president here um and, you know, it is he has framed it as, you know, we are going, you know, we're, we're asserting New York's position as like the crown jewel in the in the Democratic alliance. But it's pretty obvious to anybody who looks that uh, Mr. Adams is uh, trying to assert his position as a, a potential future national Democratic candidate. So um, I, I don't know. I don't know how it works with the mayor of Lisbon, but at least here in New York. The mayor basically exists to be a punching bag for all of the citizens yeah. of the city. You basically take that job so everybody can yell at you. Uh, the the village, the village idiot. Yeah, I the dunk tank clown. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Charles Coins had no idea what he was up to because I think everyone, even himself, thought that he was going to lose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He campaigned he was, yeah. saying he would make a unicorn factory in Lisbon. <laughs> okay. This, this is true. Um, so, th- like, this is, like, one of those, you know, uh, bullshit startup uh, things, Okay, right? yes. But we call them, you know, unicorns, so it's, like, a unicorn factor. And this oh, was an actual so, so like campaign a, a, promise. like, an incubator for, like, tech startups? Exactly. Okay. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he's basically, his whole uh, platform is just some minor tax cuts. We have, like, municipal taxes, some, some, some minor tax cuts, and... Um, basically giving back... Uh, taxes to, to the people, the people. who earn so the most the most yes. the ones who paid the most taxes got okay so so those would you so would you time. describe his his orientation as as conservative again it's it's difficult it's just yeah. interface so, like this because okay. we just so have I think, the two and i'm sure yeah. you guys have like 10 so i think this is a fun game which we we'll say like the name of a party and okay. you'll try to ask their political uh try to guess their political alignment yes well, right? I can say, uh, like, a- anything that has the word peoples in it is either hard <laughs> left or hard right. <laughs> we, we, do have, we do have one. Uh, it used to be the hard. popular party. Uh, the um, Democratic Center, Social Center. That's one. Democratic party. Social. CBS, I'm going to yeah. think Democratic Social Center. I'm going to uh, guess that that's like your Democrats neolib party. Uh, they well, did. They did have there. that strain, but the yeah. so like conservative, conservative, religious, rightish, like okay. Catholic, Catholic, right? Okay, right um, Catholic as opposed to populist yes. Catholic. So, like, but, but like posh. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. Bourgeois. Yes. So, like almost aristocratic, I would say. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, our we have a social democratic party. Okay, so I'm gonna guess that's your center left party. No. That that is our center right party, ironically. Right, so a liberal initiative. Yes. They don't even put the word party in the name. It's just a liberal initiative. Okay. I'm giving tips here. Okay. <laughs> uh, liberal initiative. 
Oh. Is that the center center left party? <laughs> do you have a center left party? I'm just going to say do have, we do. They're not, we do. Yeah. They say they're not uh, left or right, so they're obviously right. Okay, but yes, the, exactly. They have, well, it, works like, the, it works the exact same way here. Anybody who says, I'm neither left yeah. nor right, is absolutely a right-winger. They they have the they call themselves liberal, but they have that also that you know that shtick in right wing media where we're actually classical liberals. Yes, exactly. You know that one. They, yeah, they're so. liberal in the Adam Smith sense, which means <laughs> yeah. that Except the only thing that matters politically is is ownership, and we will exactly. literally kill everyone to defend it. <laughs> Yes, except they, for some reason, love landlords, unlike Adam Smith. Mm -hmm. And the um, U.S. Yeah, and the U.S. They do love the U.S. Uh, so we have one called Enough. <laughs> it, has, it has an exclamation part. It's, it's, uh, okay. it's a It's an interjection. Let me go with, given the international stylings of these types of people, is that kind of your green party? Like a... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is not. Um, it is a... Uh, so our Green Party is actually, we have more than one. We have one called the Greens, so okay. that would be well, that, easy, That's obvious, easy, yes. Yeah. Um, and those uh, generally um, run uh, in a coalition with the Communist Party. Okay. Um, uh, and there's another one, which is probably the funniest name we have. It's called People, Animals, and Nature. Okay, and so I'm going to guess, based on the, the rest of this game, that that is not a Green Party. That one, no, that one is. Oh, a that's party. the other green party. Okay, but it's more, it's more focused on like animals' rights and stuff yeah. like that. Okay, pets and, yeah, and yeah. Pets, the thing is, pets we rights. have this group in Portugal that uh, supports pets and animals, mm -hmm. and are neo-Nazis at the same yes, time. Yes, and they're called IRA. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're like one of the bad IRAs. Um, that's that's a, an amazing an amazing type that. And so they go from this uh, party pen to enough, mm -hmm. right? And they're in between. They're not. Am I far right? Am I green? Both? Yeah, so we didn't actually say it. enough is the far right party. Okay. <laughs> like the really, the really, um, the dictatorship was good actually, folks. <laughs> that, uh, kind of, yeah. I mean, that, that, that totally makes sense because, it, you know, uh, as William F. Buckley said here, you know, conservatism is standing athwart history and saying, stop. They're saying, we, enough. We've had <laughs> yeah. enough history. We're going to yeah. stop it here <laughs> and, in fact, roll it back. Well, that's pretty much it. Yeah, that's they they yeah they're very um, shady. I would say that's I'm trying being nice. I guess. Oh, and by the way, uh, yeah. Charles Coins, mm -hmm. which of these parties would you say he's from? Oh, I'm already. I didn't already... even say any left parties. So just just to clarify, there is a socialist party. Okay. They are. I would call them generously. They're like social liberals, so they mm -hmm. are center left, but you know, are very economically very right. to the right. I would say. Um, uh, not very, but enough. Yeah, yeah. there's no. there's some space to the right, right? There's a lot of space to the right. Mm -hmm. uh, and the two main left parties are uh, the Communist Party, the Portuguese Communist Party, and the Left Bloc, which is, they are like three Trotskyist offshoots that kind of made a okay. a, a party, and they're kind of more culture war-y um, left type. Right. You've so just alienated like fifty percent of your of our airline. Well, they, they they care about workers as well, but <laughs> they they talk about these issues more, right? Um, and we have also another call called uh, free livre, right? Yeah. It was that's kind of a more like green, okay, um, um, Euro socialist, left libertarian, like in the in the classical sense. But so you get a lot to choose. Right. So yeah, yeah what do you remember? I, Which of these parties is the one? So we have the mayor? Social Democratic Party. We have the Center, um, Center Party. We have Enough. We have the Liberal Initiative. We have yeah, Socialist Social Party. We have. So this guy is, is, is Coins Liberal Unicorn? Initiative. 
He could be. Uh, could he be. could be. He could, could be. be. Okay. The I'm going to call that good, that good enough for, uh, for yes. me. Yeah, he's actually, um, so he's actually from the, he's kind of a Kamala Harris figure because okay. he's, his his father was uh, a Marxist. Um, okay. Uh, and so, he worked for Goldman Sachs. And, and then he worked for <laughs> Goldman Sachs. So, yeah, that was, that was. Um, he's a technocrat. Is, yes, is, is exactly. Now, he's he is from the from Social, Social Democratic Party, now, which is makes a lot of terribly sense. named. From yeah. the way you describe this guy, is is he part of the, um, how, how to describe this? The the growing Illuminati? Inter- the growing okay. international coalition of uh, I would say um, swaggering buffoons. You know, you you he, know what I'm talking about from your Berlusconi yeah. to uh, your Boris Johnson oh, to your no. To your he doesn't Trump. have the charisma though. Uh, he okay. doesn't. He, he's yeah. yeah. He's he's more he, of he um, sounds like Kermit the Frog. Yeah. Okay. He's a short. He's not even a short king. He's a manlet. <laughs> um, yeah, he's he's not. Uh, yeah, the, so he doesn't have that charisma, right? To mm-hmm. to to qualify, um, he does lose his temper a lot in municipal audiences where we'll he'll say stuff like, uh, you know, when he's arguing the left, he'll say stuff like, you know, you guys were born pure. You know, look at these guys; they're so pure. They they've never done anything wrong. They'll just have these hissy fits. I mean, those are the the yeah. arguments that happen everywhere. Is you know when you <laughs> would try to point out like, oh hey, look at all these. Uh, you know, fixable injustices that could be like very, (laughs) very um, directly confronted with even a modicum of, you know, of, of commitment to a, to a certain ideological or value structure. You are immediately met with, you don't understand the reality of (laughs) negotiation (laughs) and, and uh, triangulating between constituencies and shareholders. You know, you love hearing about (laughs) shareholders, which really just means uh, you're not giving you're not paying us, you know? (laughs) Exactly. So maybe we should uh, run what's been happening in Lisbon with Charles coins culminating in the Vatican saying we have nothing to do with this guy. Yeah. There's (laughs) there's a bunch of stuff. Yeah. He, uh, started a war on the people that whose work is to uh, take the garbage out of the streets. Okay. So the streets were flooded with garbage uh, for yeah. weeks. So so uh, is that a garbage. is that a uh, like a union dispute or are the are the the sanitation yes. workers as we would call them uh, like a, a big union block in the city? Uh, they are municipal workers. So Municip- they like all all um, public um, the workers I and so the the yeah. mayor said that these strikes were politically motivated right so that's wrong mm-hmm. uh, so well, in lisbon can you think of a, a strike being politically motivated like, <laughs> imagine <what's that>? yeah <laughs> imagine yeah. yes yeah, so one wanting a uh, enough wage to uh, live on uh, is that that is that is oh that's too political you know <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, so are all so your the, uh, municipal workers like? Are your cops and your and your sanitation workers in like the same la- labor block there? N- no, like we have the kind of like I wouldn't say exactly the same issue with police unions mm-hmm. unions, but they are they are still they're all like public workers, but they are like in separate yeah. unions. It's, it's also there's like twenty different police unions. That yeah, all age, yeah, hate one another. Yes. Well, great. You, lo- you at least they can fight and among themselves. And they're filled themselves. with neo Nazis yes, and other sources. Oh yeah, we have we have that. So like the there are some guys who are like aligned with the cops. that are aligned with the enough. Yes. Um, that, yep, that makes sense. Uh, yeah. Uh, they they do the, um, the like their symbol like they're like called the zero movement. So they do the the okay know, the okay sign. Great. It's great. It's great. Uh, so you know how like we we get a lot of like secondhand uh, America stuff. Yes. 
um, you know, like everywhere else. Really, I, I, I will I will say an anecdote just talking about, you know, international, you know, trading international political stories is when, when we were in tour on when Chapo was on tour in the UK, you know, we'd be talking to all these, you know, like hardcore labor guys in, in the UK, who you know, I love talking with and, and hearing about, you know, what, what their struggles and what they're working on. But they would all have deep deep knowledge of american politics down to like <laughs> minor senator senatorial or representative elections and i eventually just like asked one of these guys in, in manchester like why how you know i i get knowing about america because again we're like the dominant force in the world but how do you know so much about american politics and this guy was like well you know if you follow politics america's like the premier league you know, you can you can pay you can pay attention to your re regional leagues, but you really want to ta f see what's going on, you know, in the in the majors, you know. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's really interesting how like especially like a lot of the alt right, you know, stuff uh, eventually does come, you know, mm -hmm. like the, you can almost like set your clock to the like six week delay that it takes for certain issues. You know, now it's uh, like um, you know the United States has a lot of like trans moral panic stuff yes. now it's coming here as well yeah you know, i mean like it's that must be especially frustrating on an international level because so many american culture war things are so deeply rooted in american psychoses neuroses about sex and gender well i mean you know that that happens all over the world but you know that is something like very specifically and intentionally brewed up by a very small subset of American cultural conservatives because they think that it will be a winning wedge issue in like right. the American formation of culture. And then, you know, it's like, just like all pop culture, it's, it somehow gets exported. And, you know, just, I imagine the frustration of being like, Oh God, now we have to argue about this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. but it, yeah. You're already so tired of hearing this from the U S and then <laughs> yes. you have to two years after go through the same thing, go through the same arguments. And it's just so tiring. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of, it's kind of like having the gift of foresight in a way, right? Like you'll, mm -hmm. you'll see this happen like, in, Oh, this is our future. Like two years from now or well, six weeks or at least it gives you yeah. some time to prep. It's true. It's true. Like we've, we're basically just going through the same motions, like having the same arguments in like our op opinion columnists and mm -hmm. the, the exact same arguments that you would see um, on, you know, American media, like you will, you will see them just regurgitated. Yeah. And, yeah. That's why Charles Coyne doesn't want us to bridge the gap. He has more stuff than he wants to do. Yeah, he, he wants, wants to, to try new stuff. He wants to innovate yeah. new culture wars. Yes. yes. Well, hey, no, he at wants least it's the some culture new wars to start here yes. by incentivating the Americans to come live yeah. here. Yeah, it's true. We do have a lot of Americans. As digital nomads, now. not paying tax or paying very low tax. In, so in that way, we can start the new cultural wars here so yeah and we export can them draft here. them like a, like if we a have the americans here we can start them here <laughs> like, uh, ever since i i watched friends i want an american landlord <laughs> i want to pay my rent to an american i mean friends <laughs> friends sense. is a a hilarious depiction of of you know uh, new york apartment living uh you know, I, I yeah, huge you, apartments. You can see my no entire rest. apartment in in the back of this, and you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm doing pretty well here, and I'm, I have this this studio. Um, yeah. So, so you mentioned the digital nomads a few times, and you know, I, I guess I'm interested. I'd be interested in talking to that because, you know, living here, I know a number of American expats who have decamped. Uh, more, more, uh, more for um, Spain has been very popular. 
Berlin, Germany has been very popular, but I understand that, you know, Lisbon and Portugal are, are very, from a government level, are very active in attracting people. And, you know, how can you blame us? Because it is wildly expensive to live here and nothing functions yeah. properly. So it is an attractive deal for us. And, I, you know, I, again, I, I, I sense some frustration on it, but it's also it's also like... I mean, it's it, it you, you, it's just like gentrification in neighborhoods here. Yeah. It's it's a process that is beyond any individual's, uh, uh, you know, blame. Even if the aggregate effect of it is negative to the people already living there. So, to tell me a little bit about the uh, the digital nomad and the, I mean, the influx th- of expats. Say, yeah, there's there's like a very specific brand of TikToks where they're talking about the cost of living in mm-hmm. Lisbon. And, you know, this is, this is, you know, like, what does a banana cost, Michael? Yeah, exactly. It's exactly. Like the kind of, you know, like they'll say, you know, we'll spend uh, a thousand euros on rent. We'll spend like 2000 euros on groceries. And, and meanwhile, people are like the average wage in, in Portugal is like 1000 euros. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and rents are obviously because if you can just evict someone, you can exchange, like yeah. you can change one rent from, you know, 500 euros to 1,500 and the guy that comes from you know America is gonna be like this is so much cheaper right mm-hmm. you know 1500 euros that's that's nothing right? yeah especially if they um, can still be working yeah. for their American yeah, job. They, yeah yeah they're just generally I working from outside. I think we should know yeah. that this has been a, a process for the past 10 12 years. yeah this is yeah. a long process it right? started with tourism and then yes. there was this uh, law that was basically liberalized rents in Lisbon rents that were yeah made some evictions easier and exactly stuff like that there was a lot of like uh, really old buildings would have rent control Mm -hmm. and then people would be like oh we're not gonna like we're gonna pretend this old lady didn't die for 10 years because (laughs) the rent's really good right you know there's a lot of like stories from just just people trying to hold on to these 50 euro 150 euro rents and when you're getting like a 300 euro pension you know like that's that goes a long way right yeah exactly it's a big difference yeah after we had like the center of Lisbon turned in, into like Disneyland, Charles yeah. Coyne said, "We need more of this." Yes, more please. More uh, brunch yeah. places, mm-hmm. more like co-working spaces, and tax breaks for crypto. Crypto, of course. yeah, we do yes. have those. Yeah, we pay zero crypto tax. I mean, yeah. it's it's interesting. You know, I, I'm sure that 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 process feels different specifically in a very very old city like lisbon but it is funny how universal that is you know we've been lucky enough to tour um a lot through the united states and go to a bunch of different cities and i I would say you know it's it's great to meet all the people who, who live across the country but one of the most depressing things about it is seeing more and more how much every urban area is looking exactly the same because yeah all of the motivations to do this kind of things for basically every urban area at, in the States and now more and more across the Western world is the same, is to reorient uh, towards these specific types of itinerant, very mobile uh, knowledge economy workers and then reorient all city services to service economy to service them, which you know leaves out a whole strata of people who are you know of the city uh, who are looking for a place to live and not for just for yeah. a place to temporary, temporarily email from. 
We, we used to be known for our like cheap espressos, and now it's like yeah. everywhere it's like ten dollar lattes. <laughs> you know? I've been looking a lot into terrorism ever since. <laughs> what a segue! So, yes, there's like the, the dead center of Lisbon, like the the, the most centermost square. Uh, there was a bank there, and the bank closed, and they opened up a, a subway. Right. Of I don't know anyone who eats at Subway, so it's <laughs> it's not for the who, Portuguese people. Yeah, who is this for? Yes. Like we have better sandwiches at home. <laughs> and that's 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 interesting, right? Because you'll kind of have this this pitch where it's like, you know, oh, come to like Lisbon, it's still like very typical. There's still a lot of, you know, like this culture. Uh and then, you know, it's all it's all Disneyland, right? It's yes. all it's all fake. It's all done for tourists and digital nomads and and all that. But I think you made made a good point where you were saying um, you know, like it's obviously not the individual's fault. Like they're they're just following the normal incentives, mm -hmm. but obviously they're like the 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 visible face of this change, yes. right? Um, and it's interesting because you know there's that quote about like socialism of fools and right mm -hmm. the, about the wrong targets and, yeah, and all yeah. that. Um, but it's it's interesting how like here the right wing are like oh like this is this is the the good racism that the left has yes. right like you're being racist against these digital nomads and stuff <laughs> like that and uh, th we've actually had like the guy from liberal initiative say that there's like it, it, if you just change um, you know from like the, the from black person to investor you're 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 you know it, it sounds the same it's the same kind of discrimination it's it's also funny and I'd be interested to know how much this is the same there um, and also giving you a red flag for a culture warrior war you're probably going to get in another year or two is that all of these kinds of urban reforms over the first part of the 21st century, you know, here in New York, starting with like, you know, Giuliani notoriously cleaned up Times Square and made it mm -hmm. friendlier and, and all of our development, you know, we literally had a billionaire, Michael Bloomberg for a mayor for a long time. All of the development in New York is to make it cleaner, more accessible, more attractive to uh, investment to these new kinds of industries, to to tech and development. We fought for uh, for a while for the the, the Amazon campus that was going to be here, and it was yeah, a I minor scandal of how many concessions and how many tax breaks we were going to offer Amazon to open up a headquarters in New York. And yet, the current one of the current strains of culture we have is this absolute panic on the right wing that basically every liberal urban area in america is a war zone where if you step outside you're going to just get like murdered immediately and stolen and there's just like even again in america where we just here in new york like this month legalized the sale of marijuana in two dispensaries citywide <laughs> that it is like a a disastrous drug pit of of like you know um uh, drug addicted homeless people at every street corner and you'll see like tweets by guys who live in like you know like Lubbock Texas being like I would never take my family to New York I would I would <laughs> I, I, I would I would do fam group family suicide to save them from the depravity before I step foot into the island of Manhattan and I'm like I go out every day it's fine you know I live in Park yeah. Slope New York one of the nicest neighborhoods in the world it's it's a higher density of let me tell you that it's not going to get here in a year or two it, because the mayor of Porto, like the second mm -hmm. city in Portugal, is already talking about it. Yeah. So we're going yeah. live. 
Yeah, so it's, it's interesting because you mentioned like one of the two things you had heard about Portugal is that we decriminalized drugs. Yes. And that it worked. Right? Yes. It had like good results. Like, you know, uh, yeah, Porto's uh, mayor doesn't agree and he says we should go change back. it back. Yeah, they're, they're seeing too many uh, junkies on the street or yes. something. I'm, I'm yeah. sure that there are like sociological knock-on effects of that, but my understanding is like overall in terms of like safety use, uh, you know, and the negative sociological effects of, of prohibition that the the trend has been largely positive in, in Portugal. Is that is that accurate? So we used to have like a, both like an AIDS and an hepatitis mm -hmm. uh, and all, like all these, you know, intravenous uh, um, diseases that you'd have, like contagious diseases, you'd have like uh, those pan like as almost a pandemic, mm -hmm. and those were like largely eliminated by these, you know, safe needle exchange programs and decriminalization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so just to give yeah. you an idea, I think that in 1991, uh, it said that every family had a, an heroin addict. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then eventually became, like you said, an AIDS and hepatitis mm -hmm. uh, epidemic. And then in 2001, we decriminalized the use of drugs and it became a public health issue mm -hmm. and not a criminal issue. Yes. Yeah. It worked in every sense. Yeah. yeah. So it's, the, you know, if, if a person is um, like found using, so to speak, right, like they, they will be directed to the National Health Service. So they will be directed to, you know, help. Uh, right, like they won't be put in jail necessarily. Yes, like it's still technically, I think, a crime to sell or to mm -hmm. plant or to right, but the use mm -hmm. um, is so it's like it's not you know, and there's a lot of discussions here about like should we legalize it? Should we you know um, keep it as it is? It as it is. Mm -hmm. um, like there's all these sorts of discussions, but like there's this guy you know in, in Porto. The mayors are beautiful mayors. <laughs> Uh, they, they, like, he wants to, to, you know, turn back the clock. He wants to yeah. he hates say stop. Enough. He hates drug addicts. Enough. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's a, an independent. Uh, of course. So he used to be, I think, social, social democrat, democratic. right? Yeah. Because basically we do, we do have, like, we have all these parties, but we have two big ones, right? Yeah. Like most European countries and uh, the PSD, the social democrats are like the, the big a center right one so like all of our corrupt mayors not all of them but a big, big chunk <laughs> i would say like half half <laughs> right half are like from the socialist party half are from the it's, it's very democratic that way so yeah so the yeah. socialist party is basically the, the democratic party yeah yeah, yeah. You'd, and, you'd call that and the social democrats are the republican yeah, yeah but but it's you know with with the all the caveats right like yeah the, and I, they have I don't to think there work is, in coalitions yeah. i imagine with other things so there is actually yeah. some negotiation so yeah, as, yeah, a, that's as opposed one, to us, uh, where it's like it's the only game in town, and it's basically whatever says by the one of the two parties exactly, is, is, yeah. is basically what you get. That's actually like a, a big issue, like in the in the in the left right now, because we did have a coalition government. Mm -hmm. I remember, I think I must have mentioned this. Like I remember, like like a Richard Wolff video or something where yeah. he was describing, you know, like the socialists and the communists and the the Greens and like, well, he kind of, you know, like they're not really socialists, so to speak. Like they're socialists in name, mm -hmm. right? Um, but he's describing this. So we had a coalition government. Um, it electorally like did not go well for the other parties on the left, mm -hmm. right? So they were kind of absorbed. Basically, what happened is they just said, "Oh, you got these guys are too ir irresponsible. You know, let us govern by ourselves." And they did get uh, a majority. Right? Yeah. Um, so like, there's this electoral question: like, sh should the left, you know, be more open towards these coalitions if be because you can get some concessions, but 
does it hurt them in the long run? Basically? Right. Because because you're not representing, you know, like if they're the government, like you're whatever bad thing they do, they get hurt as well. Yes. Right? Yeah. So the, like. I don't know, like in the U.S., what's the like? The, the, these issues are very different, I assume. Yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah. it's because in the, I guess in the media or the way that you know it might be portrayed online that that it, it it in a weird way that there is this kind of pseudo coalition, even though it's not a parliamentary system between the Democrats, which are you know represent the vast majority of quote unquote left leaning people, but would probably be like a, a center to center right party in any European country, and then the progressives or the left, who are the people who are actually pushing for more social democratic reforms, and you know it is the dynamic over and over, and we see this in the two Bernie campaigns that it is the prerogative of the Democratic Party to crush and or to to uh, eliminate suppress and destroy the left to almost a greater degree than it is to actually win against the right uh because the you know the the left issues yeah. is a challenge to this the the entrenched issues and the bureaucratic mechanisms of, of this party and the, the two parties more than anything like exist to perpetuate themselves you know yeah um so and they kind of present a different kind of challenge right yeah, like yeah. if it's just like cultural issues you know they don't really have to you know argue on an economic basis and like the the more social democratic part will tend to do that like for for and that creates an, an uncomfortable challenge it's the same here right where they'll be like well you know obviously you're preferable like if you just you know like a pure utilitarian thing obviously we don't have want the right wing and yeah. we don't want them because they'll now they'll be in coalition with this enough party or this yeah. these uh, yeah, and then the, liberals right that is a, that is the then, thing that always yeah. works with um with uh, yeah, us, us good uh, us good w the people on the left who, who really actually believe in something positive to be like well look if you don't do what we say these crazy enough guys are going to get get in power yeah. and take over the pirate party and then you it's going to be bad for everybody so you got to take the most cautious line the most uh you know um uh the the, the least uh, progressing or, or left-leaning position or else the the conservatives and, th and that's basically the eternal dynamic in the democrats here is being like look we are going to do the absolute least because we believe it it, it uh, appeals to the absolute most and in fact by pushing for us to do more you are wrecking our position right. over this insane revanchist right wing that holds it, it, that then effectively holds its hand on the tiller of what is possible in in the country, like what the most insane right wing people is. What that position is becomes the bargaining position against which the center right, the Democrats, and then any left wing position is, uh, which is you know the eternally frustrating dynamic here. And it's also you know yeah, frustrating. Yeah. Like what we were trying to do with Bernie is like maybe we can get just enough people to win in a democratic primary to then topple the the organizational uh top of the democrats and and actually change this thing which is what trump was able to do even though yeah the trump the, only the, brings was with kind him of like absorbed yeah, yeah uh, i mean he brought a lot of the his particular cultural insanity into the top rungs of the the uh republicans and, and just by his sheer force of bizarre charisma and personality has made it so that no actual Republican, even the most like down the line corporate, I just want like whatever, whatever else is possible. I just want lower taxes on rich people. Now all of those people have to toe the line to the most insane 
cultural formations that have been unleashed by Trump, but he was actually able to kind of topple the the organizational top of of the Republican Party. But again, it's all within these two party structures that have been around for 150 years now. Um, You know, as as Matt would say, the biggest tragedy uh, in American politics is that our party system formed before a labor movement, uh, you know, took to uh, to had any coherence here. So any labor movement that we had in like the later half of the 19th century and the 20th century had to conform to an existing party structure rather than create a new one. You need to start beheading some people. Yeah. That's what we did here. We love throwing people off the window, unfortunately. Oh, defenestration? You're you're a big defenestration guy? Yeah. Yeah. It's a big 30 years war thing, too. Yeah, in, in the Viceroy, the Viceroy, he was, he was thrown out the window. So okay, I think we're gonna probably run out yeah. here, but I yeah, gotta yeah. ask you uh, one yeah. more thing. Just like my coworkers, my co-hosts, uh, partially jokingly, partially not, have been uh, pining for the possibility as we as we grope in the dark for new political formations that might <laughs> uh, that might reflect some possibility of change. They have been more and more joking about how the only solution. Uh, in America might be a uh, free officers movement, uh, a kind of uh, carnation revolution of our, our own. And I was just wondering, uh, ha- for you guys, how is that remembered in Portuguese history? In a very romantic, non-revolutionary way, I think. D- so we, we didn't yeah. kill enough people. <laughs> so that was Always so the problem. Uh, Too many compromises yeah. after the revolution. Okay. We didn't execute enough people, so and they came back. Uh, well, yeah, basically a lot of the people who are rich now were rich before, like right. during the dictatorship, right? Um, so do you, do you know how Martin Luther King Jr. is depicted now where you even have Republicans quoting him and, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that, right? So the it has been defanged mm-hmm. in, in many ways. So it, it is celebrated, right? It is one of the biggest, you know, like yearly um, holidays. and Like kind of you know, like a like national they're, they're, day. Yeah, National Day. There's a parade. There's there's speeches. There's stuff like that. There's you guys bust out a lot of music carnations. associated to it. We we do get the carnations. It's a big day for the carnation people. <laughs> where, where, you know, they're Forest. selling florists. They love it. It's a, it's like um, the poppies with the the English people. You know, with the yeah. uh, the remembrance. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah, but now there's interestingly there's like this sort of like reactionary uh, because we did have like a counter revolution mm-hmm. 25th of November. So there's this like reactionary push to say, you, you, you know, if you want to celebrate democracy, you should celebrate both, mm-hmm. you know, like the revolution and the counter revolution. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. So, so like the crushing of the left basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, you know, you, we have that um, it is. So it's, so if you've, I, I'm, I'm really sad that like Mike Duncan didn't, continue yeah. right because i i would love to have heard like his take on although i don't blame him he, he worked on that thing for nine oh, years God, it's, yeah it's yeah that's nine years is a would lot. have liked um, more but don't blame him for, for stepping away oh no n- not not at all but i was just gonna say that it th- it did follow the same structure where you would have um you know like you had this he, first it was just like a political revolution where it's like well you know this this system is completely decrepit let's just change mm-hmm. it and then like kind of because a lot of the officers were um, you know, um, not radicalized, not exactly the term, but they were leftists, right? Yeah. So they, they were, they were, they started pushing in a certain direction uh, of a social and economic revolution, like where there were, you know, the um, agrarian reforms and like all this, like co-ops, like a lot of bosses just fled the country. So the workers it. reorganized yeah. into, into co-ops. Like my father was in one of those situations um, uh, where basically... Wait, which side? <laughs> 
no, like his boss left and he said, well, I have to go to Brazil now. Um, <laughs> yeah, so send them you, all guys, Brazil. you guys just, this is yours now. Uh, so that was, you know, he actually just handed it over. Yeah, so. when you know someone who has a relative in 74 who went to Brazil, like, yeah. what was he doing in Brazil? Brazil, South Africa, Rhodesia. Yeah, there's yeah. some, some, yeah, some, some certain red flag places. Cu- the countries. The thing is, yeah. then the cultural information wars began. Yeah. yeah. And after all this took place, a lot of information started going like, oh, the communists are going to take your house. They're going to take your little garden. The church was in, in, in on this yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. So there was a divide between the people who were trying to organize and the people freaking out that their houses were going to be taken yeah. away. Communists are coming. Yeah. The communists are coming. Yeah. 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 So it's it's you know it's it's like a very sanitized version of it is like you know broadly celebrated. It is like I you know it's interesting for me that like most countries have this. The people who really care about the past are like very reactionary normally, and like the leftists here, like they do have that period to cl- cling back to, where you know, oh, if only we could just make Portugal great again in that specific yeah. way, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, kill more people. Yeah, well, I mean, we, we have a yeah. I, I you, you talk about reactionaries clinging to history, and I mean, I do think that's history. That's interesting, and we can kind of go full circle about like why yeah, we can wrap this Matt up, yeah. and I are interested in this, and, and you know. I tend to find it a little tedious and pedantic to to be like what we're doing is well actually you don't understand how you know mm. revolution you know but again in culture wars that we will certainly almost export there although again this is a very particular one because we have the this whole like battle over history going on now around this like hysteria over critical race theory which is you know basically right. a made up I mean, it's a real academic field, but brought into like a high school, it makes no sense to basically say like, oh, if you talk about the existence of of like uh, race based oppression, like if you mentioned that once there were races that were oppressed here once, once I'm doing air quotes, uh, then you then you're doing dangerous liberal ideology and we need to ban that from schools like that's a big panic that's being fostered here. So it, it does feel like an acute moment to try to do what one can to try to get out and again what what i was saying we're trying to do with the 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 30 years war podcast is not like you know try to bash people's head in with like some kind of you need to orient your ideology this way but just to (laughs) tell a history in a compelling way in the way that we as left-leaning people see it to try to you know again try to get something out that's like hey maybe if this thing happened this way Maybe the next thing that we're going through can happen another way or a different way, or maybe it'll help you think about this. But, you know, that that right. battle over how you see history is it is it is important. And it's, uh, you know, but I think, again, I, in my mind, the best way to get at it is to make the study of history fun and vibrant and funny in whatever dark yeah. way that that you can make it. And, and just try to point out like the inherent absurdities of of the revisionist right-wing arguments without being too i don't know even confrontational against it because when you get into an arguing arguing match about like you know whether x figure was good or bad i think you're already in losing territory uh you know yeah because then you're talking about well he actually yeah yeah. uh, he was an adulterer or you know like they'll just go into this weird. yeah but uh, if you lay things out that's more that's more like hey doesn't it make sense if you look at it this way Maybe with right. a little like dialectical thinking. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, so basically what you're saying is leftists should find their own elector count or prince. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Archbishop. Right? Get, hit the printing press. Start, <laughs> start wheeling out religious tracts that absolutely conform to the material interests of your elector prince <laughs> while also claiming to have the mandate of heaven. And just <laughs> blog, blog, baby. Let's go. <laughs> That's, you know, podcasts are kind of yes, a printing exactly. press kind of. Yeah, okay. So, Chris, thank you so much. This was great. Uh, I enjoyed very much learning about what's going on in, in Portugal right now. Thank you guys so much for having me on. Thank if you, you so ever want to relive cultural wars, come to Portugal. Yes. <laughs> like with a delay, right? If it's just like catching those yes. um, yeah, I'll, encore I'll, presentations. I'll come visit sometimes with a, with a list of all the of all the ridiculous <laughs> bullshit you guys can expect to encounter <laughs> in the next like a year or so. Okay, that would be great. So, you know, please check out um, Hell on Earth. It is in um, – you go to the Patreon. We'll just leave the link. You'll just find, you know, the Chapel Trap House Patreon. You can subscribe to it, and it will you will have access to all the episodes. First one's free, so you First can just free. go to the normal Chapo stream and, and, uh, and you know, and all the normal places you'll find. Thanks again. Thank you guys so much. Bye. Foi embora com a mão atrás, com a mão à frente